be our second part of a series that we're calling Truth About Trials. That's because in this passage, James is mostly writing about trials. Now, he's not writing as some kind of academic, teaching some abstract theories about trials. He's writing pastorally to Christians in the thick of trials to give them truths that they need to endure trials well. And that's why we're looking at this passage today to find for ourselves what we can do if we find ourselves in the thick of trials. How can we be equipped to endure our trials well? That's why we're turning to James 1. So James 1, 5 through 8. I'm actually going to start in verse 1 and then read through verse 8. So follow along as I read out loud James 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes... In the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Would you pray with me once more? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have given us all that we need by grace, by faith in Christ. We worship you for that this morning, God. We come to you humbly and with trust to your word, asking you to help us, asking you to equip us, to endure trials well. We pray that you would speak clearly through your word, by your spirit this morning. Use my words. May they be faithful. And we pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive from you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, last time we looked at verses 1 through 4, and we saw that these truths that James is giving us are meant to help us when we meet trials of various kinds. This is a phrase that James uses for any kind of suffering that Christians might experience in this fallen world. You might experience large-scale trials, maybe infertility or a cancer diagnosis or intense religious persecution like Christians are facing over in, in China. Or you might experience trials on a smaller scale, maybe being misrepresented by a friend, maybe being passed over for a promotion, maybe caring for a newborn. Or maybe you might experience external trials, right? maybe, maybe racism, maybe a lost job, maybe a relationship with someone who is difficult. Those are external things. But your trial may be internal as well, maybe It's recurring depression. Maybe it's the temptation to sin or a season of doubts. 
This passage is meant to help you endure any trial that you're currently facing or any trial that you may face in the future. In verse 2, James taught us something fairly radical about trials. He said that they can actually be cause for joy. And that's not because they're fun. It's because God is powerful enough and good enough to take our trials and repurpose them to use them for our good. God can use trials to test our faith, James said, to deepen our faith, to help us cling to Christ. But we also learned that just experiencing trials, that's not enough to deepen our faith. Trials aren't like a radioactive spider bite that instantly grant you Christian superpowers. There is an element of human response that's required if this is going to work. God asks us to endure trials Christianly, thinking about trials from a Christian perspective, living with trials in a Christ-honoring way. As we endure trials Christianly, God uses our trials to progressively build us up in Christian maturity, that we should be, as James said at the end of verse 4, lacking in nothing. But in verse 5, James immediately goes on to write, If any of you lacks wisdom. Though God's desire is to use trials to complete our faith, it's a process that won't be completed this side of the return of Christ. We will still be lacking. Today, James wants to help us if we are lacking in wisdom. What is wisdom? Well, we can define wisdom a few ways. We can define it in a broad sense. One scholar writes that wisdom in this broad sense is the means by which the godly can discern and carry out God's will. That's kind of wordy. I kind of like the way Pastor Alistair Begg says it. I think it's a bit more helpful. Wisdom is knowing how to live God's way in God's world. That's the broad definition, and this is a completely appropriate definition. But we can also define wisdom a bit more narrowly. Narrowly defined, wisdom is knowing how to live in God's way in some particular circumstance. This is how we often think about wisdom today. We lack wisdom, we think, when we're unclear about a decision before us. We aren't sure what job offer to accept, or if a person might be a good spouse, or what program of study to enter into, how we should be budgeting our finances. Redeemer's leaders have been thinking about wisdom in this sense as we've been praying for what's next for Redeemer. We've been asking God to give us wisdom about buildings and locations and timing. This is also, this this definition is also a completely appropriate, good way to think about wisdom. But both of these definitions are just slightly off from what James has to say about wisdom in this passage. James is thinking about wisdom in an even narrower sense. In this passage, wisdom is knowing how to live God's way in the midst of trials. This becomes clearer when we remember that verse 5 comes right after verses 1 through 4. Those verses were about responding to trials in the right way, counting them joy, enduring them with steadfastness, about God using them to build us up, to mature us. These are examples of how we can live in God's way in the midst of trial. So when James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he's saying, 
if any of you don't know how to live God's way in the midst of trial. Maybe you're finding it difficult to consider your trial with joy, with a deep trust in God. Maybe you've lost a big client or rent has gone up and you're starting to despair. You can't see how in the world you're going to make it. You're lacking in wisdom. Or maybe you're starting to think that enduring your trial isn't worth the effort. That sinful desire that you've been fighting, life would be so much easier, so much better if you just gave into it. The temptation to give up on your marriage, that same-sex attraction, that loophole that would give you a bit of extra cash that no one would notice. Why fight? What's the use? What's the benefit? Well, then you're lacking in wisdom. Maybe you're doubting that God has the power to use all things for good. Or maybe your trial is making you doubt God altogether. How in the world could a good God exist with these evil things that are happening in the world? You're lacking in wisdom. It's likely that at some point or another, we will all lack in wisdom. Lack lack in knowing how to live in God's way in the midst of trial. James's if you lack wisdom, is really a nice way of saying when you lack wisdom. And when we find ourselves lacking wisdom, James has good news for us in verse 5. We need only ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. Now, there are a couple of truths about trials in this, in this verse particular. So here's the first truth about trial that we're meant to see there. The first truth about trial today. We must ask God for wisdom, for the wisdom we need to endure trials. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We must ask God for the wisdom we need to endure trials, for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Here's what I mean. The Bible tells us over and over that God is the source of all wisdom. He is the only wise God whose wisdom is deep and great and unsearchable, unparalleled. So he is the only one we can go to for wisdom to live in his way in the midst of trial. We must ask him And the Bible tells us that God will give wisdom, he gives wisdom, but he gives wisdom to those who demonstrate a certain attitude toward him, to those who fear him. We read this in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom begins with fearing God. Asking God for wisdom in trials is a way that we show that we fear him. How so? When we ask We humble ourselves before God, and we show that we trust him above everything else. I think this is a good picture of what it means to fear the Lord. Humbling ourselves before God and showing that we trust him above everything else. How is wisdom like this? Well, let me give you an example. A couple of months ago, I had a problem with our family van. It wouldn't start. So I decided I was going to try to fix it myself. There was a slight problem with this. I don't know anything about cars. I can't even name the parts in my van, let alone diagnose what what the problem is and and fix them. If I just, okay, I want to fix this, I have no idea how. If I just started opening up the hood and started taking apart things willy-nilly, I'd probably be in worse shape than when I started, right? So to get the job done, I had to ask for help. I asked the mechanic what they thought would be 
um, the problem, what the problem might be. And I asked them, what do I need to fix it? Do you think it's possible for me to fix it on my own? And then I watched a bunch of YouTube videos of people doing the repair themselves. In asking for help, I admitted that those people were better equipped to do the repair than I was, and I trusted them. I believed their advice would be useful. And in a few days, I did it. I, I, I made the repair. This is just a little picture of what fearing God is like, humbling ourselves before him and trusting him above everything else. When we ask for wisdom, that's what we're doing. We're humbling ourselves. We're trusting in him. And this is the attitude we need to receive wisdom from God. In humbling ourselves, we're admitting our need for help, acknowledging what Isaiah wrote, that God's thoughts and ways are higher than ours. And this recognition helps us to listen. Without humility and trials, we won't ask God for wisdom. Instead, we'll tell God what we think is wise. God, it would be best for me that this trial would end right now. I know I'd be better off for it. God, studies have shown that this trauma will completely mess me up in a way that determines the entire course of my life, making me making it impossible for me not to sin. God, you've got a lot of explaining to do. It's not right that you're allowing this trial to happen. Don't you know how this world ought to be? Don't you know how you're supposed to act if you're truly good? This would be like me calling up my mechanic to tell him how he ought to fix cars. We don't tell God. We humble ourselves and ask. But asking also shows trust. When I was working on the van, I trusted that my mechanic and those YouTube videos, whatever they told me, that it was best, and I did what they recommended. We should trust God even more so, saying, God, I don't know why I'm going through this. I don't know how I'm going to endure this, but I trust that you do. We're releasing control of the situation, and we're choosing to trust God's ways, God's timing, God's outcomes over our own. So we are to ask God in humility and trust for wisdom. Well, how do we ask for wisdom in trials? James doesn't really go into it that deeply, but I think there are three ways. Um, we can pray. We can pray. This seems to be the main method James has in mind for asking God for wisdom. But we can also read our Bibles to see what God has said about trials, how he has said we ought to or could endure them. We can also consult with godly people. We need to be a bit more cautious here. People are not as trustworthy as, as Scripture, but still, Christians who are mature in Christ and are soaked in Scripture, they can often, often be a really helpful source of God's wisdom. Now, there's something else I want us to see before we move on. I think it's really interesting that James has to remind us to ask God for wisdom in trials. You think in trials, the last thing we would need to hear is ask God for help. You think that would be our default, right, to go to God to ask for help. But Satan is so crafty. In trials, Satan doesn't want you to ask God for wisdom. He doesn't want you to endure them, these trials. He wants your faith to be snuffed out. So he tempts you to separate yourself from the means of wisdom that God has provided. When you're struggling with doubts, for example, you might be tempted to stop praying. 
hiding from God because you're ashamed of doubting him. Or maybe in the midst of a bad diagnosis, you're tempted to shut your Bible. You don't think you need truth nearly as much as condolences. Or maybe in recurring depression, you're tempted not to tell anybody because you don't want to be a burden. You're separating yourself from the means of wisdom that God has provided. And when we do this, when we separate ourselves from the means of wisdom that God's provided in our trial, it's kind of like uh, taking a sick house plant and cutting away its roots to fix it, and then refusing to give it water, and then putting it in a box in the basement so it never gets any sunlight. That's the method that we have to fix this plant. It's clearly not going to do any good. In trial, we must go to God. We must ask God for wisdom. Continue to ask. Look to him for help. James continues in verse 5. And he gives us more encouraging news. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. This brings us to our second truth about trials today. The giving God gives wisdom for trials generously to all without reproach. The giving God gives, gen- gives wisdom for trials generously to all without reproach. The ESV says that those who lack wisdom ought to ask God who gives. But Pastor Ralph, uh, Pastor Dale Ralph Davis rather, points out that this phrase literally translated means let him ask the giving God. Let him ask the giving God. When we ask God for wisdom in trials, we should know that he will give it to us because he is the giving God. It's in his very nature To give us what we need. Jesus said it like this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? In your trial, God longs to give you the wisdom you need to endure it. It's part of his very nature. And if you ask, he gives generously, James says. The Greek word here means singly. Right, with an undivided intention to give what you need in trial. Singly. To give you what, a single undivided intention to give you what can, can, what can sustain you through trial. And he gives to all. There is not an end to his wisdom. It never runs out. He can give to all. Nor is there a trial that God could meet that he is unequipped to provide wisdom for. He has seen it all. He knows all. He is more than able to give wisdom in any trial. And he gives without reproach. God will not shame us for lacking wisdom or for being in a trial that's beyond us. It's like the psalmist wrote in Psalm 103. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust, that we're human, that we're not him. And he longs to give us the wisdom we need in our trial, out of compassion for us, without reproach.
If you're a Christian here today, it should be easy for you to affirm all this, that God gives generously, unendingly, reproachlessly, because you've already experienced that by grace through faith in Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, the Lord Jesus. And he gave him generously or, or singly with every intention of providing what we need for salvation in Christ. And sovereignly presiding over all of history to ensure that it was made possible, offered to us. And he gave Jesus as a gift for all. No sinner is too sinful to be forgiven by God at the foot of the cross. And he offered this reconciliation without reproach. Christ has already bore our sins. There is now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. He continues to show grace without reproach till the return of Christ. Christian, the gospel should encourage you in trial. God has, provide, God has proved rather his desire to give you what you need in Christ. So let the gospel, God's gift to you, serve as a testimony to his ability to give you what you need to endure your trial. Let's move on to our third truth about trial today. Truth number three, we must ask with our faith in Christ, not double-souled. We must ask with our faith in Christ, not double-souled. This truth comes from verses 6 through 8. James wrote, But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Did you know that uh, the great reformer Martin Luther... Uh, he wrote the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, that we sang this morning. Martin Luther, he did not like the book of James. Like, really didn't like it. Like, wanted to rip it out of the Bible and throw it in the fire, didn't like it. That's true. He did not like the book of James. And I think he disliked James because it can be really easy for us to misunderstand James. Particularly, we've often misunderstood what it means, what James means for us to ask in faith. Some people think that James here is teaching a kind of blank check theology. God is giving you a blank check, Christian. You can ask for whatever you want. As long as you believe that God will do it, it will happen. Blank check theology. Or others think that, think that James is passing on a way for us to troubleshoot our prayers. Okay, your prayer wasn't answered. Well, it didn't work because you didn't ask with enough faith. So take that first prayer back, offer a new prayer, and this time believe harder. But both of these sail past James's intent. By teaching us to ask in faith, James is encouraging us to pray with our faith firmly rooted in Christ, even in the midst of trial. With our faith Firmly rooted in Christ. This, this idea of asking in faith seems to carry two kind of senses in this passage. The first, James is saying that we must believe in Christ for this promise to apply to us. Right? Ask in faith and it will be given. We must, when we ask in faith, we believe in Christ. That is how we receive. 
This is because faith in Jesus is our only way into God's promises, into God's presence. The only way we are able to pray. It's only when we are in Christ that we can have that kind of access to God. Apart from Jesus, we're enemies of God. So if we aren't in Christ, we shouldn't expect that God will hear our prayers. God may answer the prayers of an unbeliever, but we should not suppose that that will happen. If you are here today and your faith is not in Christ, whatever trial you're in the midst of, you have a much bigger issue before you. And, and that's not to trivialize your trial, but it's rather to help you see how much more important it is that we have our faith in Christ. Because without Christ, we are eternally separated from God in an unending trial. So you must first address this faith issue by believing in the Lord Jesus. The second sense becomes clear when we realize that James is, is echoing something that Jesus taught over in Matthew 21. There Jesus, there we read um, that Jesus answered them and says, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and be thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Jesus said this right after he went to a fig tree. He found it fruitless. He cursed it, and the fig tree withered up all at once. And, and that action was meant to serve as a parable. Jesus was teaching that God was going to judge the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day because their faith was hollow. It was fruitless, like that fruitless fig tree. They had all the forms of spirituality, but none of the substance. One scholar wrote that what Jesus was really after was a fruitful faith, a genuine trust in God and obedience to his will. With this in mind, here's what James is getting at. God wants us to be committed to Christ with a genuine trust in Christ and a, de a genuine desire to obey Christ. And he wants us to have that commitment in good times and in trials. When we come to God for wisdom in trials, we must come from this place of commitment in Christ. With this genuine faith, then we can be confident that God will hear us and give us what we need. However, we have to ask from, we, if we ask from a place of doubting, we shouldn't expect to receive anything. Doubting is kind of the opposite of in faith. Um, it doesn't mean that if we ever experience any doubts or if we ever live in a way that's inconsistent with our faith, that God won't hear our prayers and trials. Think back to the example of Abraham. Paul says that Abraham is, in, is a great example of what it's like to be in faith, okay, to walk by faith. But yet Abraham, he doubts God. He laughs when God says that he's going to have a, a, a baby in his old age. And then not only does he doubt God at times, but he also behaves in a way that's inconsistent with his relationship with God. Think about the way he treats his wife with these other, with these other rulers. This isn't the kind of doubting that James has in mind. He's rather, he's talking about a strong sense of doubting. A kind of a deep wavering or an inconsistency in our attitude toward God. James says that this kind of doubting 
person is a double-minded person, meaning that they are double-souled. Double-souled, that's another way to say double-minded here. Double-souled. This kind of person is double-souled when it comes to Christ. They're not singly-souled in Jesus. And this kind of person is like the waves of a stormy sea being tossed about by the wind, formed by the ever-changing currents. This listlessness only gets worse during trials. Double-souled. Does that make sense? Double-souled. We're not singly committed to Christ. We're kind of funded, like deeply waffling. Okay. Let me give you two examples of this double-souledness as it relates to trials. Double-souled. First, we're double-souled if we're one type of person in trials and one type of person in good times. You might call this person a crisis Christian. The crisis Christian is someone who is just kind of living on their own terms. I say Christian in quotes, crisis Christian. This crisis Christian is someone who's just kind of living on their own terms, not really interested in Jesus. Then a trial hits, and they get a bit shaken up, a bit scared. So they say, well, maybe I better give this God thing some attention. And they start uh, praying more. They get plugged into a church. They get rid of some bad habits. Then, kind of over time, the crisis ends, the trial stops, and they just go back to being the same person, the same old, same old, uninterested in Jesus, living on their own terms again. And then another trial comes, and oh, right, that Jesus thing, and then the trial stops. This is the double-souled cycle, right? I think we see an example of this in Pharaoh with his interactions with Moses during the ten plagues. A few plagues would hit... Things would get really bad. Then Pharaoh would tell Moses, hey, tell God, I'll do what he wants. Just make this stuff stop. God lifts the plague. Then Pharaoh's done with God. Then more plagues. All right, I'll do what God wants. And then it's just a cycle. Pharaoh never really committed to God. He's just really committed to himself. He's just willing to do whatever it takes to make the painful stuff stop. And once he's done, he's done with God. This is being double-souled. Or we can be double-souled in the other sense. Uh, When things are going well, uh, you're committed to Christ. You've got a desire to obey him. But when trial comes, your commitment falters. Whoa, 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 Jesus. If this is what following you gets me, then I don't know if it's really for me. Or, God, I've got my eye on you. You haven't, you know, messed up yet, but I'm watching. If things ever get too rough, then I'm done. You're not interested in enduring trials with wisdom. You're really just trying to use God to avoid trials. That's not a commitment to Christ. It's a willingness to transact with Christ, provided it's beneficial for you. So that's the kind of vacillating double-souledness. James has another type of double-souled person in mind. It's a type of person that has never really made up their mind about Jesus. They're unstable in all their ways, in trials, or in good times. I kept thinking of, uh, when I was thinking about this idea of like uh, not really being committed, kind of unstable, I kept thinking of a a character that I saw in a movie, an old movie called The Mummy. I saw it when I was a teenager. There's this little smarmy guy, and every time he gets into into a tight spot, he always takes out these different kind of religious artifacts, and he starts kind of praying to a a bunch of different gods. He just wants to make sure he's covering his bases, Right? He's praying so that whoever is really ultimately powerful, or if, if it's like a, ta- a tag team or something, he just got all of his bases covered. 
Right? He's not committed to any one faith. Whatever will work. Now, you might not be that cavalier about Jesus, but maybe your commitment to him is less than wholehearted. Maybe you trust him with most things, most things but not in all things. Maybe you're willing to obey the commands that you find palatable or reasonable. Maybe you're willing to follow aspects of his example, at least the bits that give you a few likes on social media. But, but this kind of pick-and-choose faith, being open to Jesus, but also being open to other voices, open to other ways of acquiring what you've decided is the good life, James says this will not do. Think about this in terms specifically of trials. You're kind of saying, okay, I, I, God, I'm, I'm open to your wisdom. You know, what have you got to help me in this, in this pinch? But I'm not really committed to Christ or willing to obey Christ or willing to obey this wisdom that God gives me. It's just kind of one option. I kind of add it to my toolbox, and then I pick and choose a couple other things. I'm not committed to anything. I'm kind of committed to myself, willing to do what I think is most beneficial. I'm not submitting. I'm not humbling myself or trusting in God. Coming to God with a double soul, this kind of vacillating double soul or or a pick-and-choose double soul, James says this will not do. God will not be manipulated. He will not allow you to pick him up and drop him off when you think it's convenient. He will not be one of many paths that you choose to find the good life. James says that if you have this kind of double soul, not only should you not expect to receive wisdom for trials from God, you shouldn't expect to receive anything from God. That's meant to be sobering. If we're going to endure trials, we need a whole-souled commitment to Christ, a genuine trust in Christ, a genuine desire to obey Christ. It's not enough to put on a faith mask during our trials so we can get out of a pinch. We must genuinely settle in our faith in Christ. And we must be settled in Christ. We need to be in faith before trials come, while trials last, and after trials go on. For it is only in Christ, in faith in Christ, that we can live God's way in the midst of trials.